Series 2 of the Build Me A Brewery podcast is proudly partnered with Lalamond Brewing to bring you the best commercial brewing information and advice. Lalamond Brewing has been supporting both the home brewing and professional brewing community for decades with high quality products and technical know-how to ensure your beer is the best it can be. Choose Lalamond Brewing because they brew with you. Welcome, you're listening to the Build Me A Brewery podcast. My name is Chris Aiton, your host. Continuing with our wild ales and fermentation segment, we wrap up with the final episode of the segment with part three, where I chat with two US-based guests, both with big accolades in the realm of beer science, and that is none other than Lalamon East Coast Technical Manager, Molly Browning, and Dr. Matthew J. Farber of the University of Sciences in Philadelphia to discuss all things spontaneous fermentations in relation to sour beers. We cover some interesting ground, including the sour beer boom, both in the US, Australia, and other countries, the different types of sour beers in the market, the unique backstory of the Lalamon Philly sour yeast, the different bacterias that contribute to sour beers, as well as the various approaches professional brewers are taking towards brewing sour beers in modern times. It's a great chat with Molly and Matt, who both enjoy a beer during our discussion to share with the audience there, wealth of knowledge and insights in relation to sour beers and spontaneous fermentations. So I'll leave you to it then. I hope you enjoy our chat with Molly Browning and Dr. Matthew J. Farber. This episode is proudly supported by DME Process Systems, manufacturers of the gear that brews the beer in Australia and around the world. Visit dmebrewing.com to learn more about their brew houses, cellar tanks and accessory equipment trusted by thousands of breweries around the world. DME Gear has been used for 30 years and is built to last, and their first brew house still brews beer today. Build a brewery with the DME team, they'll help you build a system that will fit your brewery owner dreams and production goals. DMEbrewing.com to learn more, that's DMEbrewing.com. Welcome Molly and Matt to the Build Me Brewery podcast. Thanks for taking the time to come on today, guys. Cheers, thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. Now, today's episode, we explore things that are, I guess, sour-related. What I mean by, by that is uh, the sour beer boom and growth of the beer style within the craft beer market, not just here in Australia, but uh, also in other parts of the world also. So, uh, Molly, Matt, you've both been uh, on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. Um, you guys in, the, in that American craft beer market are seeing quite an explosion of sour beers over in that, that side um, the craft beer market so i'd really like to get both your takes on i guess the growth of the the sour beer market because we're slightly in the early days of, of of seeing that growth here in australia so i thought it would be a good addition to explore this topic in our wild owls and fermentations so uh to form part of our we had tofer on from wildflower talking about wild yeast and some of the barrel age blending he was doing uh, we had Alex and Yvonne, the the husband and wife duo, talking about some of the open fermentation stuff they're doing. So I think it would be a nice sort of closure of that segment to talk about some of the spontaneous fermentations that seem to take place with um, not just yeast, but also bacteria for um, for making some um, killer sours that are starting to pop up on the market. Uh, but before we get into all that, as always, uh, I'd like to just hear from you guys a, a bit about your 
backgrounds, uh, particularly careers, and you know, any any fun facts about you guys uh, in relation to favourite beers, breweries, etc. Uh, Molly, did you want to uh, uh, do the honours with letting us know a bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. Uh, I started brewing uh, in 2006 at Baird Brewing in Japan. Um, I didn't know how to brew. I basically poked Brian Baird on the shoulder and be like, teach me how to brew. He was very grumpy about that, but then he like later said, oh, yeah, okay, we'll do that. Um, luckily, he could hire me for not very much. Um, so yeah, I was his apprentice brewer for several years, worked my way up, and then uh, left Japan to return back to the States. Uh, I worked for Jolly Pumpkin, New Holland, um, became the barrel program manager for New Holland, pumping out a lot of giant smoke when they started ramping up production there. Um, then went to Harriet Watt to get my master's in brewing and distilling, and then went on from there to be the barrel program manager of Brooklyn Brewery, and then the production manager for a brewery in North Carolina, and then to Lallemon. So I have a lot of years of experience in production, and then, yeah, just decided to come to technical sales. So that's me. Oh, favorite beers. Um, I'm currently drinking Sierra Nevada Celebration. This is my favorite beer this time of year. So. That's the beer I'm currently drinking. They've actually stocked it over in the bottle shops over here, actually. More, more the pale ale, but I've, I've also had the celebration. It's a very nice beer, and it's, I think it's probably more geared towards uh, colder weather, um, I, I find. It is. I mean, it can, it can be a sort of um, warm weather sort of drinking beer, but I like the, the piney resiny type sort of uh, beers in the, yeah. um, in the winter. But that's great. Thanks, that, Molly. Um, Matt, uh, yeah, give us a bit of a rundown about yourself, mate. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. So I have a PhD in molecular and cellular biology. I consider myself an academic brewer. I was doing research in brewing science and, and fermentation uh, before starting a formal training program for brewers at the university in which I'm employed called uh, the University of the Sciences located in, in Philadelphia. And so I've continued my, my research and uh, amongst a variety of, of other things that I've been able to, to contribute to the field, um, including a, a textbook called Mastering Brewing Science that we published with Wiley. I was super excited to discover, uh, isolate, and characterize uh, the yeast now known as Philly Sour uh, and working with Lalaman to understand that uh, fermentation character created by that yeast uh, and to get it out to brewers all, all over the world. Chris, I think it might, I know you have questions, but I think it might be a really good time for Matt to tell the story of Philly Sour because it's a really, really unique story. Um, and I love when Matt tells it. So yeah, like well, yeah happy to hear it. I should start by saying my favorite beers, right? I, f I forgot. Oh, that. yeah. Sorry. Uh, sorry about yes, that. Yeah, yes. favorite beers. I love black IPAs and I can't find them anywhere because nobody makes them because they don't sell. Uh, and I will buy them whenever I can. Um, but it's usually far and few between that I can find them uh, in my market. I'm currently drinking uh, Headhunter IPA uh, from Fatheads, and it's actually a, a, a wet hopped version of it. So the, the American hop harvest was just uh, a couple months ago. Um, so we have some wet hop beers available. And I also have some Sierra Nevada Celebration in the fridge. So that will be my next beer that, that I'm drinking. So if, if uh, to kick off the story of, of Philly Sour, uh, we, we really created uh, uh, or, or we, we isolate yeast from the environment uh, as a way of 
educating and training our students in yeast management, in microbiology, in the techniques that are needed to run a lab and handle microbes um, in a lab. Uh, I have a formal training in teaching and education in addition to my PhD. Uh, I also had gotten a minor during my graduate uh, training in teaching and education, which enabled me to, to create this uh, formal training in, in brewing that, that I now run. Uh, but in teaching a, a course that I created called the Microbiology of Beer, we encourage students to go out into the world, to pull back samples from their environment of choice, and to isolate uh, yeast. We usually will enrich those samples that the students bring back be it bark, flowers, leaves, trees. I've had some silly things like gum, um, bugs, beetles. Someone brought a piece of bone. Um, and uh, we have a problem in the States now called the lanternfly. Uh, and uh, we tried to isolate yeast from a lanternfly. That, that was not successful. But anyway, we will put these samples into wort to try to enrich for yeast that can otherwise survive and grow in the conditions of appropriate for making beer. Uh, and I had a student one year who came back and, and we, in testing the samples for the enrichment, we noticed one was fermenting very well, but it had also dropped the pH or the acidity of the beer to a fairly low level. The pH of beer is usually around 4.2 and the pH of this beer was around 3.5, your, your typical Sour beers are a pH of 3.2 3 to 3.6. So I immediately thought it was contaminated uh, with some type of bacteria. Uh, but upon further isolation, uh, characterization, and, and identification of that yeast, uh, we discovered that it was a yeast itself that was, in fact, making both lactic acid, which is acidifying the beer, but also alcohol, which, of course, is why many of us drink beer. So. Uh, we were really excited with a yeast that does it all, because uh, as I'm sure we'll get into, different ways of producing sour beer include use of bacteria, mixed cultures, spontaneous fermentation, and Philly Sour kind of created a, a nice controlled way of making a sour beer uh, with just yeast. Yeah, well, this topic about cultivating yeast has always been a, a strong interest of mine. And, you know, we've had on Avi Shavitz, who both of you might be aware of, in series one, talk about yeast. Um, and we we're talking just before we started recording today, uh, Topher Bohm from uh, Wildflower, which is a, a Australian based brewery here. And he's done exactly that uh, cultivating and isolating yeast from things that he's found in the Australian bushland, you know, on the floor of, uh, of, of the bush and, you know, off bark and flowers. And, you know, he's creating some very unique beers that no one has ever tried before and that that does interest me because uh in a ever saturated beer market it you know it's not quite saturated as what it is over your way uh in the states um but you know finding ways to sort of differentiate yourself across all the other breweries that are starting to make the you know the typical parallel ipa and stout well what else can we be doing to push the envelope so so if we do have some time, I'd like to maybe explore a little bit more about that, um, Matt. But um, yeah, that's a great little um, introduction and, and uh, as well as yourself, Molly. So, but to open up our main content today, uh, I'd like to just get a bit of an understanding of, you know, the, the sour boom, if to call it that. Uh, I guess, you know, what the growth of sour beers in the craft beer market is looking like now. There, 
a brief history on it, if possible. Like, you know, I know a lot of people say the original sours were, were your Belgian lambics, if I'm correct in saying that, and, uh, and just understanding what the modern styles are to date. And um, uh, so if you're able to, uh, I don't know if Molly, you wanted to take the lead on that and, and Matt just get some following comments. Yeah, um, I think we've seen, at least in the States, a trajectory in terms of sour beer production. And really, you know, it kind of follows along with the craft brewing industry in itself. So the early craft brewers who started brewing sour beer, particularly Russian River and Jolly Pumpkin, who were kind of had a mindset for it, they're very intentional in saying, this is our sour beer. This is not a Belgian lambic. Be out of respect to Cantillon um, and those makers that are producing these beers in a very intentional, very specific way. And I think that's very important. Even now, like if a brewer calls a beer a Belgian lambic over here, I kind of raise my eyebrows because that's, to me, that's, that's rude. Um, you're not like I've been to Cantillon, you're not brewing in a very small window with wild yeast, with a cool ship, with barrels, like in a very, very precise, a very specific pattern. But I will say what Russian River and Jolly Pumpkin and Allagash, they have opened up the door to American craft beer in terms of the possibilities that exist outside that Lambic is great. But what Lambic can provide as a basis is even greater. So I think you saw in like the early, like the 2000s to like mid 2010s, you know, bottles, 750s of here's our Belgian style mixed culture. It's not a Lambic, but it does have some bread. It does have some lacto, you know, like Ron from Jolly Pumpkin. He's famous for saying he likes anything but pediococcus. Pediococcus is in Lambics. So what the American craft brewers were doing, which was different from, I think, European brewers were doing, where they were very intentional on selectivity in terms of what organisms they wanted to have in their breweries. Um, some were more open than others, like Allagash with their cool ships, Russia with their cool ships, but some were very intentional in saying, we want just lactobacillus. And I think that movement made a way to where you see right now where people are buying beers and cans and we discussed this you know what is the australian package market like because particularly like covid really pushed this like people want beers in cans that are easy to drink so that really doesn't limit the brewer but it does make the brewer think okay about re-fermentation about their final product and so they're looking for consistency, they're looking for reliability, and they're looking for things that they can control. And it doesn't, that doesn't mean it's limiting to the brewer. It just means you have to know what you're dealing with in order to know how to create these beers that are palatable. And most often for kettle sours, like that has been lactobacillus kettle sours in terms of Bolliners and Goza. So you're kind of limited in that view. But then with Philly Sour and with other strains coming on, that view is now broadened out, I would say, to where brewers are saying there's more flavor potential than just with bacteria. Yeah, I, I would agree with, with everything that Molly said about 
the kind of the growth of, of sour beer in the American markets. And I'll take it back all the way further to the dawn of brewing time, right? And and it would have always been mixed culture, right? And nobody even knew that yeast was causing fermentation until the 1800s. Uh, and so it, it would have inevitably been some type of mixed culture uh, beer until in the 1800s uh, in the Carlsberg lab that uh, the first pure yeast culture was was created and then revolutionizing the way that beers were made. And then since the 1800s, uh, brewers then really honed their craft in terms of focusing on clean beer made with one yeast strain. And and that's the way it was until um, fairly recent times when brewers have kind of been going back to these these mixed cultures. Uh, of course, our Belgian lambics have withstood the tradition throughout all of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as Molly said, uh, it's very important that American spontaneous uh, fermenters do not call their beers uh, lambics because that's a, a title designated for, for Belgium producers. Yeah. So I would say that, uh, you know, what Molly said about the bomber bottles was very true. And and it was exciting to try to find those bomber bottles back in the early 2000s and and to sample them. And and I've been very sad to see those bomber bottles go fall to the wayside with with the resurgence of cans and convenience. Those larger formats have been falling to the wayside. and, And I think we've been losing a little bit of the nuance of those spontaneously fermented beers because they do take time they take mastery of blending uh, and talent from the producer to to manufacture and i'm concerned especially in the american market that the average american beer drinker doesn't understand the nuance uh, of those styles and so as a result a brewer is not going to get the return on the investment that it takes to make those beautiful beers. It makes me sad because I've seen a, a, a surge of wild wines or, or natural wines. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Which, which I've really enjoyed drinking and, and exploring because I'm not a wine drinker. Uh, I un- obviously understand the process, but it's not my field. Uh, but I, I, I taste all the things that I taste in, in spontaneously fermented beers in these natural wines. And, and I find it fascinating that in wine markets, this is becoming a, a beautiful thing. But in beer, it's, it's falling a little more to the wayside with sours, in my opinion, moving more towards the, the fruited um, convenience and entry level sour, for example. And yeah. so what we see is what I think I saw then with production to, to build off of what Molly said was when we saw spontaneous fermentation then lead to kettle souring, which was a faster way of making sours um, during production, to now the creation of uh, lactic acid yeast like Philly Sour, genetically modified yeast like Sour Vissier, commercial strains of bacteria that that can benefit uh, kettle souring or or mixed culture fermentations, um, and now even hybrid uh, strains, not necessarily sour beer related, but, but Interesting to look at kind of, I, I, that's my opinion on progression of sour beers. Yeah, and I think all have their place. Like it's like a paintbrush's palette. It's like Bob Boss's paint palette, you know? Like you want a little bit of tree, you want a little bit of cloud. Um, but as long as people are respectful is important. But I think one of my best learning experiences was while I was at Brooklyn, Garrett is very keen on natural wines and I didn't know what they were at the time, but he was like, here's some natural wine leaves put it in a barrel. And I'm like, 
what am I playing with here? I have no idea. And it was really exciting because he allowed me that chance to play with them, but also bring in other stuff that I thought was exciting. Like, okay, these here's some wine leaves from upstate New York. And he was like, those aren't going to be any good. I was like, well, why not? And he was like, well, they sulfate, they pasteurize, they're not going to be active. And I was like, okay. So just that, that thought process of thinking through that thought process of production was exciting for me as a producer. Um, but I think, yeah, the wine leaves and the sake leaves, like all that natural stuff, there's a lot of possibility there. You see even that with Koji, like I was in Brooklyn a couple months ago and there are brewers over there playing with Koji for their kettle sours or well, not kettle sours, really. They're just for their sour beers. They're just throwing Koji. And this one brewer is using Koji, you know, to make, to make meals. Like he's making, he uses it for his, his food, for his like dressings, for salads and things like that. So there's a lot of potential out there. And do you think that the consumer palette is changing as well? Um, Cause I think that plays a big part in it. Um, there's been a couple of guests on the show in the past where I can't recall the, how we got into the conversation, but. I think, oh, actually, I think we're talking about the Chinese and Asian markets, you know, they've, uh, and how it differs to other parts of the world in terms of taste. Because like, I know the Hefeweizens are a, a big seller in the Asian market, especially in China. And introducing beers that have, you know, the big IPA, IBU beers don't sell too well or, or don't, um, you know, don't get a lot of fanfare in certain parts of the world because of the palates um of of that culture so do you think that you know the growth of sour beers is also because we're starting to become a bit more accustomed to that you know i never thought i'm a bit of a savory person so i never thought i'd enjoy a sour beer i'm not a person that likes to pull open a bag of warheads and eat them for dinner you know so it's um yeah it's interesting to hear your thoughts on on that i think i think there is a case for that particularly for so right now in the states smoothie beers are very big where it's it basically looks like, you know, either day glow, green or purple. It doesn't really look like beer. It looks like, you know, you just going in a smoothie and that has a time and a place. I don't, whether they're nuanced or not, it's kind of like that whole, I mean, what so many arguments about, you know, how to brew lagers, for example. Um, I think we're getting to that territory with sour beers. And I think they're all legitimate and they definitely all are acidic, but there is a difference between, you know, a smoothie, heavily fruited sa- sour beer and a mixed culture and something done with Philly sour and something done with like, like Orval, which is finished with bread. So I think we need to embrace the spectrum, maybe. That's the nice thing about all of the different ways of making sour beer is it's also yeah. created different types of sour beer, which historically were there all the time. But I think there's a renewed focus in production on some of these different styles, like a German Lichtenheiner, a Berliner Weiss, um, fruited, you know, lactose sour, which is maybe an entry for non-beer drinkers. 
to just Matt, you need you, you need to explain what a lichtenheiner is because it's one of my favorite styles and a lot of people don't know about it but bring all the smoke yeah it's just a slightly <laughs> smoked slightly sour uh german ale really nice you know mild smoke yeah well no I, and that was another thing i was interested to know is i think my learning a current sort of state of learning on sours is very um limited but uh it's inter interesting to hear all the different kinds of beers that are now starting to fall under that umbrella as sours um where like we all know lambics and and kettle sours but uh yeah it's inter interesting to see what other sort of styles are starting to to fall under that but i guess i also wanted to talk about the different types of yeast or bacteria um that uh i guess have historically been used to to make sour beers and and if maybe matt you wanted to take the lead on this give us a, br a brief rundown on, on on why they differ uh i guess in terms of characteristics flavor profiles so we've already mentioned a couple of them already uh bretomyces lactobacillus uh pediococcus um so if you're able to give the audience and myself a bit of a i guess help us differentiate between the three sure so traditionally Sour beers were produced with bacteria. It is only recently that that yeast, lactic acid producing yeast, have kind of ro risen to the spotlight. So historically, it was Lactobacillus uh, and Pediococcus, as you described, with Lactobacillus being the, the major workhorse. Uh, Lactobacillus is used to make sauerkraut and yogurt and, and to all those nicely acidic fermented foods that, that you know and love. Uh, but lactobacillus is also a spoiler of beer, right? If if you have a beer that otherwise should be a nice, you know, quote unquote, clean beer that is not sour, uh, it should be free of of those types of of bacteria. Uh, the challenge with pediococcus, uh, which is also used uh, historically, is that in the presence of air or oxygen, it's it's making a different type of acid called acetic acid, which which you would recognize as vinegar. And so that's appropriate in certain styles, you know, like a, a Flanders red, for example, but usually not a welcome uh, acid in, in most sour beers. The challenge with using bacteria is you need to give it a head start or a lot of time. Uh, and so sour beers then historically took a long time to produce because you needed to give enough time for these mixed cultures and, and microbes to, to do their thing. And it was only until the last couple of years uh, ago that we have discovered lactic acid producing yeast that removed the need for these types of bacteria. Yeah, the, the lacto or sorry, the lambic fermentation curve, if you want to call that, is very, very interesting because Pedio comes in very early and then dies, if I'm remembering correctly, and then lacto takes it the rest of the way. But you're juggling like three or four different strains and the Brettomyces is always there, but the Brettomyces has to be there. And it's crucial that it is there in order to mop up the Pedio in particular, because uh, Pediococcus and some strains of lactobacillus, but Pediococcus in particular uh, can produce a lot of diacetyl. So you're juggling strains that, you know, you may or may not know of, particularly if you like 
just put cooled wort in a cool ship and you're letting it open to the air, you don't know what you're getting. Exactly. And part of the challenge with using these bacteria is that they're often hop sensitive. And so yeah. you, you often needed to have very low hop beers, very old hops in the case of lambic production, so that you didn't have those isomerized alpha acids from the hops um, inhibiting the acidification potential uh, of the bacteria. And this creates a challenge for the yeast because then you're asking yeast to ferment a pre-acidified wort. Um, and it can, you know, it can be done, of course. The, there are strains that, that do just fine uh, with that. And, and there are now bacterial strains that are a little more hop tolerant. But again, as we've understood uh, lactic acid producing yeast, it creates more opportunities, for example, like a, a sour IPA because yeast don't care about hops. So why, and you mentioned there uh, a point on older hops. So uh, I don't know if you went into detail as to why they are more beneficial to, um, to, to the former in terms of like brand new hops. Why, why are older hops or aged hops better? That has to do with the, the lambic uh, tradition in, in producing those beers, but they, as hops age, they decrease in alpha, but their beta acids for lambic production are, and Matt, please correct me if I'm wrong, um, are deemed to be more useful uh, for lambic production. So it doesn't really inhibit, that alpha doesn't inhibit the bacteria from acidifying the wort, they will offer the beta acids uh, will offer in some mm, flavor contributions in terms of some bitterness, but it will be a milder business bitterness. It will not be as aggressive as alpha. Yeah. yeah th those alpha and beta acids get oxidized, uh, which yeah. then increases their solubility, but decreases their bitterness and, and decreases their um, inhibition of bacteria. So uh, you can, and you can also get some interesting flavors from aged hops as well. We often think of old hops as cheesy and yep. garlicky, but there are some strains that, that actually are hop varietals rather that benefit from some age and, and you can get some real nice uh, flavors. Yeah, perfect. So we've mentioned about yeast and you mentioned bacteria is more of the leader in terms of the, I guess, creation of sour beers, but. Molly, are you able to maybe give us a bit of a, a background on Lalamon's Philly Sour um, yeast and um, as well as some of the, the, the other bacteria that they have on the market, such as uh, uh, their yeah. wild brew range? So if you're able to take the lead on that, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, sure. So as Matt kind of explained in the kind of intro, Philly Sour is a strain of Lachancia that Matt and his team found at U Sciences. They actually found it in a graveyard next to the university, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I didn't get to see the graveyard, but it was there. And yeah, so it's a strain of Lachancia that produces lactic acid and ethanol at the same time. It, it's interesting in terms of its fermentation characteristics in the sense that it produces lactic acid from glucose. So it has a very specific set of instructions for fermentation, which is unlike Saccharomyces. Saccharomyces is like, give me all the sugar. And 
Philly Sour is like, give me the sugar, but one at a time. And then I will do with it what I like to do with it. So for example, for glucose, which is a monosaccharide, right? It will create lactic acid. And then when it hits maltose is like, Ooh, great. Now I'll create some more ethanol. It will create ethanol with some glucose, but the majority of that lactic acid is being produced when it hits glucose. Um, and then the other strains that we have are the are lactobacillus strains. So these are bacteria. And one is a plantarum and one's Helveticus. Uh, the plantarum is produces a, a milder acidity, I would say. Your pH is going to drop in 3.5. And here I will note that pH and lactic acid production are very different things. pH will describe a whole range of acids. So you're getting more than what you would bargain for in terms of lactic acid, you can't correlate pH equals this lactic acid, for example. So to understand what lactic acid your lactobacillus or anything is creating, you really need to do a titratable acidity. We do have that tool on the Lalamon Brewing website. It is um, basically the ASBC, the American Society of Brewing Chemists, their beer method eight. That is their calculation. We put it on our website with a description of why it's important for you to use. And all you need to do there is a, is a titration. So you need to take your pH, you need to titrate it with um, sodium hydroxide, I believe. And then, yeah, just plug in your numbers to this, to this tool we have on our website. It will spit you out. Here is your grams per liter of lactic acid. But anyway, so the sour pitch is our plantarum strain. It was the first dry plantarum strain. And then Helvetica's pitch is the first lacto-helviticus strain. And the helviticus will produce more lactic acid. It also, in terms of flavor, be more sour, uh, lemon sour patch candy, um, whereas the plantarum is a little bit more citrus in flavor. So, so I'd be happy to, to weigh in on Philly Sour since uh, it's something that came out, out of my lab. I also just cracked uh, Sierra Nevada Celebration. So cheers to Molly. We're drinking the, the same beer uh, across the country. So that's fun. Um, so like, like Molly was saying, Philly Sour being a lactic acid yeast is uh, a new product on the market because there really weren't any lactic acid producing yeast that had been discovered and, and commercially available. It is a natural yeast. We isolated it from a from a nearby graveyard, um, came off of a tree, and uh, it is a non-Saccharomyces yeast. It is a Lachancia species. The really cool thing about Philly Sour is you can make a sour beer just by adding a yeast, much like you would pitch any yeast into your fermenter, be it a ten barrel or you know a a, a, a couple hundred liter fermenters uh, versus uh, a small homebrew batch, you can pitch Philly Sour like you would pitch any other yeast. The beauty of it is it makes lactic acid first in the first couple of days and will drop your acidity uh, to probably around where you'll see it. And then it switches to alcohol production after a couple of days and will finish fermentation. So you can actually sometimes see a slight lag in fermentation activity when that switch occurs but it generally will do a good job of, of, of fermenting the beer to completion by itself. It also has character. Uh, it is a yeast. Uh, and as a result, you're getting some ester character and some flavors 
from that yeast in the beer. We get notes of red apple, uh, cider-like apple, not a green apple, which is attributed to something like acetaldehyde, but but a, a pleasant cider-like note with increasing glucose concentrations. If you were to add glucose or dextrose to your, to your uh, recipe, you'll get a little more acid production and you'll get more stone fruit flavors like peach. Uh, and, and it makes a, for a nice, nice sour beer all by itself. It also like, I was really surprised when I met with Matt before COVID and, uh, Marissa, his colleague, they, the range of beers that Philly sour can make are quite interesting. Like we had a sour triple there that was amazing. So, and I've had brewers come up to me and want to make beers that aren't technically considered normal sour beers with Philly sour. Um, which I think it's possible to do. I would really like to also explore like non-alcoholics in this range, because if you have the ability to create an acidic beer, an acidic beer but then stop fermentation, you could create like a really nuanced non-alcoholic beer with Philly Sour. Yeah, and, and the way, uh, Matt, you explained how the Philly Sour works, was, you know, like, like you said, with the, the yeast sort of, adding the lactic acid in the early days to bring the, uh, I assume the pH down to then flip it into alcohol production. Yeah, I guess it starts, it really does make sense to me how, how that works, but where, where are yeast and bacteria? What are the key, and you may have gone over this, so apologies if I'm rehashing it, but what are the main differences between a yeast producing or a sour yeast producing product to a bacteria? Yeah, th- uh, that's a good question, and, and I think it deserves uh, attention. So th- thank you for asking it. Uh, it. It's a matter of of how your process is designed. So if you are doing kettle souring, for example, you're pre-acidifying your wort by moving the mash or the wort um, pre-fermentation into your kettle. You're throwing in a, a bacteria. You're increasing the carbon dioxide levels. You're holding it at a warm temperature around 35 to 37 degrees Celsius for a day or two to drive acid production early, but you're not making alcohol. The bacteria are just pre-acidifying that work by making lactic acid. The benefit of the kettle souring method is that now you can boil it and you kill off any of that bacteria and you can then move your pre-acidified wort into a fermenter where you'll ask now your yeast to undergo alcoholic fermentation. Uh, And this is a controlled way of making sour beer, right? In a condensed amount of time. Again, if we go backwards to the spontaneous fermentation, you're dealing with a mixed culture, which will take time. The acidification might occur early. It might occur late. Um, the, The fermentation will be slow. Uh, and and it often requires blending uh, of of different barrels or or different varietals to to get the right kind of flavor dialed in. So the kettle souring, I think, was an approach to shorten and condense sour beer production, but still has a slight risk of bringing bacteria into the brewery, which which some brewers are adverse to. Uh, enter the lactic acid producing yeast like sour vicier or Philly sour. Uh, and the yeast does it all. Uh, and so you would just make wort like you would make wort for any beer. And then you can add those yeast uh, to the fermenter to produce to produce uh, a sour beer. And, and and like Molly had said, these are all different tools. And so I, I don't want to say that one is ever better than the other. 
it can create different nuances and flavor and style. Uh, but I think certainly with the lactic acid producing yeast, there, there's certainly even more opportunity for, for differences in style and flavor. And this is, well, the flavor specifically is kind of something I want to touch on in terms of, I mean, you do get a differences in lactic reception between Philly sour and uh, kettle sour beers. Like it's, it's a wide range in terms of, the Philly sour to me is it's a lot more digestible. Beers made with Philly sour, they're a lot more softer in acidity. Um, but also, and this is something we're trying to study a bit more, but it's a bit uh, elusive, is the f- some flavor effects that you get from kettle sour beers in terms of THP, which brewers would know would know as Cheerios or a mousy flavor, you don't seem to get with Philly sour or beers made with fermented uh, lactic acid producing yeast. Um, we don't know why. Philly, our THB is something that's very uh, difficult to detect in beer, um, but it's something we kind of want to dive into. Um, but the, the flavor perceptions with, with the bacteria, they're great, but you, it's very difficult to make a more um let's say not nuanced but the bacteria are very much centered on uh gozes and berliner vices like very straightforward lactic acid producing beers they're very clean um they're very easy to drink but philly sour they can make those beers but also philly sour could have a range of oh let me go into you know old brunes or other styles that aren't necessarily considered acidic. So I think the potential and ranges of style is, is kind of more interesting with the Philly sour and has not been explored yet with the bacteria. Well, uh, there was a mention there about, I guess, there's not one way to, I guess, or one approach to souring a beer. Um, and that was a, another question that I had is, and we, we, may, we, we talked about some of them like kettle souring and, and cool ships was another, and uh, but I, I was interested to explore from your experiences and knowledge as to what brewers are, what sort of approaches are they taking in regards to uh, creating sour beers? Are you able to touch on some of that? Maybe Matt, if you wanted to take the lead on that. Yeah, in addition to to what we've described, uh, the easiest way is to add food grade lactic acid. And to, to, you know, this is not German Reinheitsgebot approved, uh, but uh, a lot of American brewers were just dumping lactic acid uh, into their sour beers. This to me is very transparent. I, I mean, it, it really is a one-dimensional sour. However, uh, a lot of uh, sour beers in the American market right now are heavily fruited, oftentimes very uh, lactose-laden um, with milk sugar. Uh, and so in that case, it, maybe it doesn't even matter. Um, but I, I think most brewers perceive that as cheating. <laughs> they they don't really enjoy that approach um, and would only do so uh, if absolutely necessary. Uh, and so uh, I think the, the, the predominant approaches have been kettle souring, as we've described, uh, and now uh, lactic acid yeast. I think given the length of time that it takes for spontaneous fermentation, 
it's it's truly the dedicated or focused brewery upon which that is their mission you know that those are the styles that they excel in that they want their brand to be focused around they're the ones that are are spending the time and resources on that particular approach but uh, i think most commercial brewers don't have don't see the time as worthwhile unfortunately because truly those spontaneously fermented beers and lambics have the most depth of of character and flavor yeah which is i think that that patience from the consumer is probably lost in the states at least because i mean i'm sure you know with 9000 plus breweries everybody's kind of feeling the need to have shelf space and everything like that so it might not necessarily be what the brewer wants to do but it's driven by what shelf space they can maintain um which is sad and it's an interesting point you bring up because uh just referencing a conversation i had with tofa in our part one episode from wildflower part of their model or his model was uh to not get too leveraged by the banks so they don't actually make their own wort. uh they contract it out ibc it in uh and they just have barrels and um, you know horizontal fermenters and uh and just do their blending that way so they're not actually brewing the word on site they're just fermenting on site for that, they were able to enter the market a lot cheaper. They don't have all these bills and these, um, I guess, financial expectations. And if a batch goes terribly wrong, which is a big possibility with the inconsistency of the ingredients they're using, uh, it, it, it allows them to experiment more and uh, push the envelope a bit more, I guess, where, Molly, you were mentioning about breweries, especially in the States, especially those large production scale ones. They have expectations, they have customer expectations, contracts they've got to meet. And so the willingness to push things a little further or to experiment, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a large risk for them to do, especially if they're going to ruin batches over it. So, uh, yeah, I guess what you might see is some of the smaller size brewers uh, starting to play in this space and, and offering different and unique products to the market. Is that something you both would agree to? That, that business model that you just described is one I've seen in Philadelphia. There's a brewery called Fermentary Form, and they're doing just that. They're pur- purchasing work from a, a nearby brewery so that it's easy to transport. And they're doing some really beautiful mixed culture uh, and spontaneous beers. And they've created a really great niche of customers that appreciate that style. And I, I think by focusing on that style, you know, then you find that customer base that will support your your business. Uh, so I am all all about that. I just wonder, like over here, I don't see a lot of breweries wanting to dedicate their capital to that. They would rather fight for shelf space. A lot of the small smaller breweries are entering the market, and in the states, it differs by state whether you can self distribute or not. And so you have a lot of things that come into play that might not necessarily be indicative of the entire United States. But from what I see, a lot of the smaller breweries are like just wanting to fight for that shelf space and that that space in consumers' fridges rather than, you know, hey, this is rather than taking the time to tell the story, this is a very dedicated process. Um, but then I'm I might be, I don't know jaded and older 
No, I, you make a good point with uh, the American market being, of course, uh, beer alcohol is regulated by state. So we all have different laws depending on what state you're in. And so that model might actually not be viable in, in, in a couple of different states across the country. Well, it, it seems to be, I've said it quite a number of times, the core part of the audience that listen to this podcast and follow the website is is those looking at starting like a nano micro type brewery brew pub model um some of them have aspirations to start out that way because that's you know the easier way for them to enter the market take advantage of higher margins in their tap room and then scale up to some local distribution into bottle shops but uh but then you know i hear a lot of stories from people who are just happy being that local brew pub or nano brewery on the corner in their local area and they don't have any aspirations to be national or to be statewide and i think it's those breweries there that are a lot less risk averse maybe that's not the right word they they are more willing to take a bit of a punt on a batch and might stumble across something amazing um, as opposed to you know a large-scale production that cannot afford one batch to go wrong or you know their 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 wastage needs to be quite minuscule you know what i mean no that's very interesting chris that you pointed that out because it reminds me of when i started in japan where you know yeah you could be successful on a 2.5 hex system like we were um i don't find that's the case in the states like it's very difficult for you to be a nano brewery in the states and i matt i don't know if you find this differently but it feels like in order to be successful, I'm not talking about like, you know, regional growth or anything like that, but just talking about financially successful brewers here need to be on, you know, at least a 10 barrel system. And then there are always aspirations for growth. I don't know of too many places that are like, we're content to be, you know, a three barrel system and be fine. Yeah, since this is a, you know, build me a, a brewery, uh, it's important to, I think, give some advice about building a brewery. And I, I wouldn't yeah. build a nano brewery because you're going to outgrow it. Uh, yeah. There are no, there are very few nano breweries in the States because they quickly outgrow their nano status um, or they outright fail. I mean, I knew only one that, that had to close, but they, they were making not good beer. Um, and so uh, I think it's worth trying to find the funds to create a bigger brewery so that you're not going to have to have to find those funds in a year. Um, and so build a little bigger from the outright. Yeah. And that, but that also could be very regional. Like in Japan, we were okay on a, a 10 hex system, which is seven barrels for like, six years seven years and then brian scaled up he scaled up a lot um you know whether he scaled quite a lot um but that seven barrel system was i mean we were happy there that was a sweet spot but we also weren't i mean japan's the size of california you know you're not it's very different dichotomies there yeah and that was a, a big theme of series one, Matt, um, and, and Molly, I know that you, you're in agreement that, you know, I fought with the, the, the ideology of opening a nano or microbrewery, and I've been given quite a lot of advice that, you know, you are going to outgrow it eventually, especially if you make half-decent beer. Um, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's what they're saying. So 
if you do have the funds, go bigger in the beginning um, because, you know, it's going to cost you a lot more if you need to move your entire operations to a whole new facility instead of just buying a few more tanks to add with your production. But um, but what I'm seeing is, um, you know, there's, there is a lot more people. I don't know if it's financial motivations is what's driving it, but there is quite a large number of people that are, are, are doing it now or aspiring to do that. You know, we're talking leaders over here, um, but, uh, you know, your two, 300 litre um, uh, type systems, um, one man bands, you know, small overheads, they might own the place. I mean, I guess it does depend on people's financial situations, but um, but yet again, if uh, if you can be profitable at that sort of level and just, you know, you don't want to scale up or expand anymore and just have a take-home wage, I, I don't know, that's what the, the, the what people are saying. I'm not a fully on board with it. I'd like to say that I'd be going with a bigger system, um, 10, 10 heck being one of them um, or slightly smaller. Um, just so that I, I'm not causing any sort of, uh, pains in the asses for me down the track when I do want to slightly explain. I think it's also really important to note, and this is where I think a lot of U.S. brewers go wrong, is they don't heat their, um, mash vessel. So if they can't step mash, if you're only infusion mashing, you are losing a ton of savings just a ton. If you're, if you have the ability and you, I think all brewers should do this, put this into their brew house where they're able to step mash at least that is going to save you so much time. It's also going to create like really, really nuanced beers, but in terms of malt savings, in terms of production savings, like it's just, it's instrumental. Mm, And I see I see brewers over here who are doing 20 barrels infusion mashing systems. And I'm like, you, your efficiency, your brew house efficiency is just down the drain. You're essentially a glorified, like not to dismiss home brewers, but you are essentially home brewing on a 20 barrel system and you're not understanding the intricacies, particularly with climate change being a big part of the barley harvest, like your intricacies of your malt. And if you don't know that, if you don't know your malt COAs, if you don't know the asses at least, you are just bleeding money down the drain unnecessarily. Yeah, malt, malt prices are going up 10 to 15% uh, yeah. this year. So that's that's yeah. a whole nother podcast episode. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes we, uh, Bring us back for that. <laughs> what uh, what I wanted still. to... Sorry, what I wanted to add to that conversation was uh, the, the most expensive resource is your time. Uh, and to, to open a nano brewery uh, on a you know 100 to 200 liter system, in theory, you're going to be brewing a lot to keep up with demand or you're running out of beer. And so I've seen in the states, uh, particularly in my state, Pennsylvania, you can put on guest taps. So you could put on another brewery's beers you can't ever sell more than 49% of someone else's beer. If you have a brewery license, you know, whether they're tracking that or not is, is, is an issue. But I, I see Molly reacting. Those of you who can't see Molly, because again, this is a state to state thing, right? So this is a Pennsylvania thing, but I, I know when a, I know when a brewery is under 
staffed or rather they have too small of a system because I see five guest beers on tap at their brewery. And I'm not going to their brewery to, to drink other breweries beers. Yeah, we have some silly laws like that as well. I think it's um, relating to the hotel license scene. So, you know, um, some of the pubs who have to go through the ringer and spend millions of dollars to get their licensing, to, you know, to essentially serve other people's beers, they they sort of get a bit green with envy that the small little brewery down the road can sell other people's beers and not get pulled up for it. So I understand the, um, I guess, the... Uh, you know, the outcry for it. But anyway, we, we have steered off a little bit of topic, but it was, it was really good to, um, yeah, share your thoughts on it because it is predominantly starting a, a brewery. We are talking a bit about the beer science and technical angles of sours, but it's interesting to get um, your, your takes on, on, on it from an operational and business owner standpoint. But um, Chris, to go back on topic, the other thing, the other point I wanted to add was for brewers who, you know, are wanting to brew sour beers and wanting to have that part of your portfolio, know what you are using in terms of your lacto source or whatever your souring source is. Like I know brewers that look to lactic acid that we were talking food grade lactic acid and yogurt, they will produce different characteristics and they will be cheaper. Like they are, but they will not get you a consistent product in in terms of flavor in terms of production that you wish it would and only using like the products that you know that say hey this is a lactobacillus plantarum this is a lactobacillus helvinicus this is philly sour this is how you ferment with philly sour we'll give you that um and i think a lot of brewers don't don't realize that and don't realize the value in that of you know hey, I know how to, to use this particular source of sour method. Perfect. Coming towards the end of our conversation, two last questions. Firstly, what you both believe are the future of sours? I know that you guys are more uh, well across the US markets, but if you're privy to any other markets, whether it's here in Australia or in other parts of the world, Europe, Asia, etc., keen to hear your thoughts on what you think uh, we will experience um, in the craft beer space for, for sours, you know, the different diversity, um, you know, do you think Brett beers will make a comeback? Um, you know, is there any other species of sours or bacteria or strains that you think will be used to develop um, the, the style? Uh, don't know who wanted to take, have at that one first. So boy, where to start? Uh, let me start with Britannomyces. Uh, Britannomyces get flagged as some people get really mad when people say Brett makes sour beer and then other people say Brett makes sour beer. Let me tell you from a scientific standpoint, Britannomyces can make sour beer. Eh? Uh, in, the, in, the, in the presence of oxygen, Britannomyces can make acetic acid. I want that uh, and, on the t-shirt, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, don't let your anybody who's listening, uh, I hope I've swayed you, Britannomyces can make sour beer, but they don't typically. There, there has to be some extra oxygen present throughout fermentation, uh, especially on the tail end. Um, bread is more known for their flavor nuances that are very distinct, the horse blanket, barnyard 
And I love that flavor. Uh, I loved uh, exploring Brett beers uh, in the 2000s, and they really have fallen to the wayside because I think brewers have learned more about spoilage potential and contamination. They ran into issues with it. It also takes time to develop that nuance. And again, I think the American craft brewer wants to make beer fast. And so Brett is yeah. too slow for, for most uh, uh, manufacturers. And they want Brett in a can. Like right now, beer in a can sells. And that's what brewers, particularly coming out of COVID in this new landscape, that's what they, unfortunately, they need to do. And Brett, Brett is slow uh, because it chews on those sugars over a long time. So uh, it, if you're putting beer into a can and you have active yeast in there, it could lead to some re-fermentation uh, in the can. We have yeah. held on to so many cans uh, from Philly Sour. Uh, they, were, they were not filtered. They were not centrifuged. They were uh, not pasteurized. Uh, and they are not re-fermenting. So, uh, I have one in my Philly, cupboard right now. Philly Sour mm -hmm. is a, a much safer uh, yeast to use. Um, I, I think well, there will be competitor strains on the market. You know, Philly Sour was uh, one of the first natural uh, yeasts, uh, Lachantia non-saccharomyces yeast, to, to produce um, a, a good beer. Uh, and there'll be some competitor strains out there. I know some other companies who are, are trying to sell their, their wine versions of their Lachantia strains uh, on the market. And they under attenuate beer. They don't do well with the complex carbohydrates that, that are in a brewer's work. They do very well with wine, which is uh, mostly sucrose, but, but they don't do well with, with uh, a brewer's work. Um, and so those yeasts are being advertised as you have to pitch uh, a secondary yeast uh, afterwards. Uh, so I, I know there are some other yeasts out there, um, even uh, non Lachantia, but, but yet other species that um or sorry genuses that produce lactic acid i have not seen them on the commercial market yet uh, i've not really worked with them myself but i wouldn't be surprised to see more lactic acid yeast and uh, to, to set up molly a little bit i, I think genetic mm -hmm. engineering genetic modification while it's a tricky and slippery slope uh, and not available in the australian market um, i think there's a lot of opportunity there and but the more yeah effective method might be hybrids yeah i think both are they offer different solutions and there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity there but then like neither like replicate and night well replicate fully neither can replace i would say a belgian lambic like you go to cantillon for a specific reason and like nobody should take that away. Um, and we're not looking to, I don't think Bredemices, like Chad Jacobson at Cricket Stave, he wasn't looking to when he did his project. Um, but he was highlighting with the Bredemices project, like, hey, you could use Brett for primary and it could be quite interesting. Um, so those flavors are definitely something of potential. Yeah, I would like to see the U.S. market go there. I'd like to see the U.S. market be more nuanced like we are with, are we becoming with natural wine? Perfect. And might tie into some closing thoughts about our episode, but for any aspiring or established brewery owners listening today that I guess are fairly green to sour beer brewing, 
can you offer any advice uh, to them starting down this pathway? You know, maybe starting with the basics or how to, you know, they could experiment um, with introducing new products within their, you know, their offerings. Uh, are you able to, yeah, give us some some advice for those those audience? Yeah, I'd be happy to start there. I mean, I think a a, a really nice starting place is fruit, and the the beauty of acidity is it bolsters those citrus notes and those fruit flavors in your favorite fruit uh and so that that's going to complement uh, a sour beer always and so if you have a local fruit that you're particularly fond of that could be a really nice marketing angle um uh, for for a particular beer and let that fruit shine just make sure it's fully fermented if you're putting it into cans that old taboo yeah i agree um i think if you're just starting out know what you're using uh a lot of people assume they know what's in yogurt and when they actually don't but it is a true value to know what your lactobacillus is because very various species of lactobacillus differ and some create diacetyl some do not um so know what you are using know what temperature it's happy at know like with philly sour you know know what it what it takes to make it happy um these are yeasts that shouldn't be they're not necessarily easy to use and they shouldn't be because you know it took a long time to find them in nature you know nature didn't really want to give them up right away um but uh, similar to like all brett strains like each brett strain has a different characteristic so kind of knowing what that is, is is really important. And then also in with pertains to barrels, um, barrels have a unique characteristic of their own and yeast and bacteria can live a long time in barrels. So just be aware that um, you are dealing with a living organism when you are dealing with a barrel. And there are certain ways to uh use barrels appropriately depending on what beer you're looking to use and if i could give a high level uh description of, of how to handle philly sour to make a good uh, sour beer I, I mean i i'm obviously biased for obvious reasons but <laughs> i think it truly is uh, an easy and effective way uh, of making a sour beer for those new to producing sour beer because again you're just pitching yeast like you're pitching any yeast uh, so my 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 kind of high level quick tips are ferment warm add a little bit of glucose maybe one percent two percent or dextrose uh to the mash or change your mashing uh, profile to get a little bit more fermentability and if you're going to add uh, fruit i like adding fruit around day three or day four that kind of helps give it a little bit of a bump philly sour is very flocculent uh, and so it can slow down in fermentation and so if you give it a little bit of extra sugar at that day three day four point rouse it up a little bit that's going to help it get to the finish line uh, i also wouldn't make a big beer with it uh, i'd make a, a pretty standard uh four to five percent alcohol beer yeah we do have like a best practice on all of matt's tips too that are it's on our website but we can send it out to whoever wants it as well um, yeah, yeah, that would be great. And listen, this uh, probably ties into um, you know, closing today's chat out. Um, was there anything uh, you guys wanted to mention? Any upcoming events? Uh, 
you know, things are starting to open up definitely over here. Uh, but, you know, people are getting together again, especially from a, a conference. I think Matt and I want to go to Australia. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're we're looking forward to kicking off our Australia tour. So, who you know, whoever oh, wants to help us kick that tour off, you just uh, let us know. We, <laughs> we do karaoke, you know, as well. We do. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we can have a chat with Dan regarding that. I'm sure he'd be a, a good um, exactly. sounding board. Dan for... owes me a trip. Oh, he does. He does. He does. Um, <laughs> I was supposed to come over in last year. Uh, Brewers, Brewcon, was it? Yeah. Yeah, wow. it's been cancelled two years in a row now. Um, yeah, I actually had um, some plans to go up there and do a, a couple of mini interviews while I was up there as part of this podcast. Um, but, uh, uh-huh. yeah, that got knocked on its head uh, about a couple of weeks out from its actual uh, date. Um, so hopefully next year um, we'll be able to do it, but uh, August okay. next year. But um but uh, you, can, you can have us both on. Yes, yes. No, it would be great to start doing interviews in person again. But um, anyway, well, is there anything you guys would like to leave uh, today? If um, people want to, I don't know if you're willing to put your yourselves out there from a, you know, reach out to me if you would like some more advice around this or any further things that you would like to mention to people to look into on the subject. Uh, anything you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, I can, like, you're, I'm easily found, like, if you want to get in touch with Dan, who's our Aussie rep, he can put you in touch with me. Dan's also a wealth of information as well. So, yeah, happy to help. Yeah, and what I would also suggest uh, to both of you, if you want to uh, uh, join our Bill Me Brewery Facebook discussion group, we've got quite a lot of other brewery consultants um, People in the industry sharing a lot of good advice uh, might be on sours, it might be on uh, different beer styles, might be on wastewater treatment, who knows. Just a really great resource. So if anyone has any of those questions, I know the, the mixed culture sour sort of crowd is quite a popular growing one. Um, so if anyone has any questions, hopefully we'll have Molly and Matthew in that group that they can answer any questions as well. It might be a good way to get in touch. But um, well, thanks again, Molly and Matthew, for coming on the Bill Me Brewery podcast. Cheers. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to the Build Me A Brewery podcast. I hope you all enjoyed our interview with Molly and Matt in our final episode of the Wild Ales and Fermentation segment. In our next episode, it's a full house of guest appearances with AB Vickers Technical Sales Manager, Sarah Young, Lalamon Technical Manager, Richard Chamberlain, who was a returning guest of the show, and head brewers Nick Calder-Skulls of OneDrop and Jack Vinny from Moobrew, where we dive further into the beer science angle again, discussing the various types of enzymes and brewing process aids used in the commercial brewing industry to assist with making better beer. For further content, visit our website www.buildmeabrewery.com.au for more brewery building related content. I also encourage those that have yet to do so to join our 900 plus strong Build Me A Brewery Facebook group, link in the show notes, where aspiring, in planning and industry professionals from Australia and overseas currently share their stories, opinions and advice. That's all for now. I'm Chris Hayton, your host, and this is the Build Me A Brewery podcast.